So they take from the original Hebrew and they create, the Lord to me a shepherd is want, therefore I shall not. And it kind of has Just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Absolutely. Welcome to the Why You Ideas podcast, where values-based education meets today's challenges and opportunities with your host, Rabbi Dr. Stuart Halpern. Today's guest is an instructor in English at Stern College for Women and recruitment officer at the Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought, Dr. Shana Trapido. When Moses came down Mount Sinai, he came bearing the two tablets of law, carrying the Ten Commandments. When the first Americans, they weren't even called such, arrived on our shores in the United States, the pre-United States, they too turned to text to mark the occasion on some level, to, to celebrate the ethos, the character of what they were embarking upon. And they rather curiously printed what book, Dr. Trapito? Tell us about the first printed book in the United States. So it's actually fascinating. If you had to guess when the pilgrims came over in 1620 and then shortly after they were followed by the Puritans, what's the one text that you would need? Printing is a really rare form. It's a really expensive form of manufacturing. You couldn't just Amazon order something. So you had to choose a text that was both theologically important, but also extremely utilitarian, something that everyone's going to need. And the first thing you would imagine is the Bible, certainly. Now, there were a lot of copies and translations of the Bible, but what the Puritans decided to do is they wanted a new translation of the Psalms. Now, the Psalms were incredibly important for their devotional work, but also they were really unsatisfied with the Psalms in translation, the Sternhold and Hopkins that they had, uh, because they weren't singable. Now, I know that sounds interesting that the Psalms, as we know, they're composed means more. They're kind of shigayon. We have all these different terms in Hebrew for the different types of lyricism because the Psalms were written to be sung uh, by the Levites in the temple. But the Puritans really needed that kind of metrical system so that they could sing them. And also, everybody got one book, maybe not even that. So it was another way of mnemonic of bringing this uh, this language and uh, the way of praising God into their daily lives. So they printed the Psalms, but they first had to go back to the original Hebrew. Now, for the Puritans, translating from the original Hebrew was incredibly important, but every act of translation is an act of interpretation. So just to give you an example, so in the King James Version of the Psalm 23 begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And there's a cadence and a rhythm and a majesty really to the King James translation that gives it the the quality and this kind of sterling rote language that finds its way into so many different versions of Western literary creation. The Puritans in their translation uh, needed this metricality. So they take from the original Hebrew and they create, the Lord to me a shepherd is, want, therefore, I shall not. And it kind of has just this, rolls off the tongue. Absolutely. Uh, but it does have that metrical beat structure. So it can be sung and you can kind of set it to any tune. But what's really fascinating to me about the translations of the Psalms in particular is, is that when you look at the Psalms, they're unique within the canon of the Hebrew Bible, because not only are they poetry, but they're poetry from the other end of the relationship between human beings and the divine. So much of the Hebrew Bible is about God initiating and calling out and trying to have a relationship with mankind, with human beings. And the Psalms is the reaching from David and the other composers upward. This is the other side of man seeking God. 
And part of what becomes bound up in the Psalms and their political and social necessity, really, is how do we understand that relationship between man and God, between human beings and God? Um, is it one of reciprocity? Is there seeking? Is there a dependency? Um, so there's a lot that has to do with authorship and authority and taking control of the translation, being both pure and authentic to the Hebrew verse, but also making it functional for uh, religious services really important to them. And the Psalms, in terms of the impact that they've had, not just on uh, America's early founding, I mean, we can trace Psalms being present everywhere throughout early America. Uh, Most folks probably are familiar with the Hamilton version of the American story. And one of the things that I remember thinking as I uh, listened to that track over and over is the line kind of toward the end where Burr says, now they don't tell you this in your classes, but look it up. Hamilton was wearing his glasses. And it just made me think there are so many things they don't tell you in your classes (laughs) when you learn American history. And one of them, uh, especially if you watch the Hamilton version, is how devout, how um, critical the Hebrew Bible was and the language that came out of that in the infrastructure and the ideology uh, in the foundational direction of the country. So the Psalms are everywhere. The, the Psalms appear in the very first Continental Congress. They can't even get the meeting started uh, without a discussion of to initiate the importance of this first meeting in 1774. We need to start with some kind of prayer. Now, there was a debate about you know, who, which, which Christian sect should or shouldn't be invited to speak. Um, and at the end of the day, they wound up uh, asking um, an evangelical preacher, Robert Duchesne, and he decided that the best thing that he could do was to start by reading Psalm 35, which is about man's obedience to God and God in return fortifying and strengthening the ambitions of mankind. And, and you see the Psalms over and over, letters between Jefferson and Adams debating different translations and meanings, um, also acknowledging the fact that if they both really wanted to understand the Psalms, they would first have to understand the corpus of all of Hebrew uh, thought and tradition. There are actually letters where they talk about I would like to know what the Psalms mean, but I haven't read Gemara and Mishnah, and they bring up the Kuzari, like random obscure texts. Uh, But I guess part of wisdom is acknowledging what you don't know, and they certainly did a good job of exchanging that. So the Psalms are incredible, and they've just gone on to infuse so much, not just of imagery, but ideology and and, um, an energy to language and what language can achieve. So from the first settlers on our shores to our own selves today, you've been thinking about Psalms relevancy. So can you speak a little bit about your current Psalms project? Sure. So the Psalms uh, project that I'm working on in partnership with Erica Brown and Shira Weiss began a couple of years ago. Uh, Stu, I'm going to pitch this right back to you. I believe that part of the idea was having uh, a group of writers from within the Yeshiva University community respond to the Psalms was your idea. Uh, and we just carrying the banner forward a little bit. Uh, but the the Psalms continue to have different meanings uh, and different applications throughout history. Uh, Jewish, Jewish people have turned to the Psalms in times of distress and elation. And I actually taught a class last semester with the Strauss Center called uh, Tehillim in the Human Condition. So the Psalms and Human Condition. So many different responses uh, to the Psalms and the idea that the Psalms in Rabbi Sachs's uh, term, they give us kind of the lexicon of the Jewish soul. Hmm. And because they're so prevalent, accessible, and available, we thought it would be really wonderful to get a total range 
of people from within the YU community to choose and respond to a song that has meaning to them. And we went out and we solicited all of these essays. We're putting them together and compiling them into a publication. We have folks that are not just uh, professors within the community, but alums who've gone on to different, do different things within uh, the world and have impact, choosing psalms to write about you know, what they responded to, how they find the psalms relevant in their own practice, historical context, uh, political applications of the psalms. So looking forward to putting that together and sharing that with everyone. And I won't tell anybody, but what's your favorite song? Oh my goodness. Um, that's a really, I could tell you my favorite sonnet. Sure. It's <laughs> another course, uh, Psalms and Sonnets. Actually, such an unfair question. But I think one of the things that I like about Shakespeare's Sonnet 18 is it's the sonnet that everybody knows. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art lovely and temperate. Uh, so I always think it's interesting that that sonnet is sonnet 18. It's sonnet chai. Uh, and when you get down to it, he's really talking about how language has the ability to have people make people live forever. Uh, he mentions at the end that the, the love or the beauty of the beloved won't last forever. So the sonnet ends with, nor shall death brag that thou wanderest in his shade. Meaning that the love will live on forever and death won't even be able to brag that they're coming close to death. Now that, if you're listening closely, you're hearing echoes of, of chapter 23 from Psalms that in the valley of the shadow of death. And Shakespeare's kind of picking it up and playing with it and negating it. But how does his beloved not end up uh, being condemned to a valley of death and shadow is he says, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. And the lines that he's referring to are the lines of his own sonnet. And he says, so long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. And this is the implication of writing and of poetry, that poetry has the ability to transcend and take us through time and kind of uh, both instill temporality and subvert temporality and create all sorts of different kinds of eternities for us. And so I guess I'd have to couple those two together. That's fair. For being such a brilliant teacher of, of these eternal lines, both Shakespearean and divine, we thank you, Dr. Trippi. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. The Why You Ideas podcast is a production of the Office of the Provost of Yeshiva University and Uri Westridge. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review if you like what you're listening to. We want to hear from our listeners. Write to us at shalpern at yu.edu. In the meantime, stay deeply rooted and forward-focused.